Broadcasting live from the Business Radio X studios in Phoenix, Arizona, it's time for Phoenix Business Radio, spotlighting the city's best businesses and the people who lead them. Hello and welcome to Phoenix Business Radio, broadcasting live from the Max 6 Entrepreneurial Center right here in Tempe, Arizona, where we help build businesses and connect you with the right people. I love it when we have a full house, Daryl. It's always so fun. And today is a very exciting connection with our LinkedIn friend, Dr. Obata Sabay, who is a neuro-ophthalmologist and owner of the Brain and Eye Institute. Welcome. Thank you. I can't remember how we initially got connected. Maybe Daryl did that for us, our producer. I think um, it was a connection through LinkedIn. I got invited, and I'm like, yeah, this is really exciting. I'm so glad. Uh, and I'm very much looking forward to, to hearing about your expertise, your experience. And you were kind enough to ask, and she was kind enough to accept, Carly Norton, who is a patient of yours. Welcome to the studio, Carly. Thank you. Happy to have you here. How far did you have to travel? You live here in the Valley? I live in North Phoenix, but so it was about 25 minutes. Not bad. Well, thanks for making time. And where is your office, or do you have multiple offices? Currently, I have one in downtown, so around 7th Street and Indian School. Okay, so not too far, maybe a little farther for you. Thanks for making that. I'm glad we made it midday. And also with us is Dr. Danielle Remington, who is an optometrist. Welcome. Thank you. And tell us about your connection with Dr. Subai. So Dr. Subai and I have mutual patients that we share, and he's also came come to be a lecturer at our state association. So. And what is the state association for? The Op- Arizona Optometric Association. And what is your role? A member or? You re- I am president-elect. I'll be president in April. Very good. Well, welcome. Thank you. And where is your practice? So we have three locations in the East Valley. One is in Sun Lakes, Tempe, and Ahwatukee. Okay, not too far not for too you. Far, yeah. the, you win the closest award. Yeah. <laughs> I actually live in Ahwatukee, grew up in Tempe. Just really kind of love staying really local. It's been mm-hmm. fun. Although the winter, this particular winter, has been really cold. The coldest, my dad and I decided yesterday. Since, since high school, which has <clears throat> been a while. And rainy. Yeah. I'm starting to see the wildflowers pop through and the green when I'm hiking. I mm-hmm. think we're in for a beautiful spring and quite possibly a very hot summer. Oh, yeah. How long have each of you been in Arizona? Have you been here a long time? I have been here six and a half years. Okay. From where? Ohio. Okay. So this rainy, cold weather is familiar? Yeah. I'm not like, <laughs> no. it reminds me of Ohio too right. much. <laughs> right. Carly, how about you? I'm from Washington State. I've been here um, since fall of 2021. Okay. And uh, yeah, I'm used to the rain. Yes. So. Yes. Not mm. too big of a transition. No. <laughs> but you've been here 21, been here long enough to have experienced a milder winter with us. Yep. Yes. Yep. Good. How about you? How long have you been here? I've been here about six years. Okay. Yeah. Well, 79 for me. Long <laughs> wow. time. Well, let's dive into our conversation. I know we've got a lot of ground to cover. Very excited about it. Let's first have um, both of you describe. Um, your businesses, the, the people that you serve, what is, you know, what is this area of eye care that, that we all need to know about? Do you mind starting for us? Yeah, of course. I am one of the very few neuro-ophthalmologists in the state of Arizona and currently the only one who's still accepting new patients. Neuro-ophthalmology is a complex field where um, it's basically the backbone of vision. So the eyes will look yet it is the brain that sees. So that you can think of the eyes as the um, very complicated cameras, mm-hmm. yet the camera without a hard disk and processor doesn't really do too much. And so the, that's the, the brain's job. Camera, the eyes take the picture in, the light in, colors and everything, and then sends them through 
the optic nerve, which goes all the way to the back part of the brain where vision is recreated, processed, and made sense out of all in real time within split seconds. It's, it's incredible. Majority of vision specialists focus on the camera, but it's only the neuro-ophthalmologist that focuses on the heart disc or the brain part. Wow. <laughs> and we only have an hour. And that's just one uh, viewpoint, as well as right the connection between the two of you and, of course, Carly's story. And you're the only one in our state or the uh, greater Phoenix area that is currently accepting new patients. There's, there must be high demand for for this type of practice. And, and Absolutely. Absolutely, yes. I mean, there are at least a half a dozen neuro-ophthalmologists, but because of constraints in uh, the medical system, it is not financially feasible uh, or rewarding in many ways to practice neuro-ophthalmology the traditional way. Yeah. And so I have uh, tried to adapt and learn from different colleagues and different parts of uh, specialists, uh, specialties, especially in ophthalmology and, and neurology. I do traverse, you know, two different fields. So I have the opportunity of learning from two completely different points of view. And I've managed to kind of, you know, get the positive aspects of both neurology and ophthalmology and came up, cooked up a, a solution to try to make it more practical. Incredible. And so far, it's been working okay. Can I ask why, what the inspiration or the motivation was to say, oh, this is my lane. I need to, I need to spend time here. It doesn't just happen. I mean, I've always, <laughs> I've always been interested in vision. It's the most important sense in the human uh, experience. I mean, people who are deprived of vision are deprived of so much. We rely on it so heavily. I mean, we need it to drive. We need it for entertainment. We need it for work. There's very few things that don't utilize vision one way or another in our day-to-day -day activities. So I've always been intrigued by vision. Um, but then as I got into medical school and I learned more about things, um, I realized there's very, very little um, education in medical school about vision. And so I knew that I had to go further and deeper in to be able to figure out what exactly it is that interests me in vision in terms of how to help people. Sequences of events that made absolutely no logic or sense or planning. Uh -huh. That's an honest <laughs> answer. I love it. Yeah. Just end up um, having me uh, engaged in this fellowship in neuro-ophthalmology at Michigan State University. You can just kind of explain things a little bit. You can get into neuro-ophthalmology either from the ophthalmology side or from the neurology side. I went through the neurology side. And so I got and my mentors and my program director and the chairman at Michigan State were neurologists also. We did have some ophthalmology trained neuro-ophthalmologists, but it was heavily uh, neurology driven. And so I learned from them so much. I was, I'm like, this is great. This is just so impressive. In my opinion, that's one of the most, if not the most cerebral aspect of medicine. And, and it sounds like uh, so much more to learn about it and has been underutilized. Is that what I'm hearing you say? That, that it's just now really people are starting to, to request you to come speak and talk about how important it is, the connectivity between, I'm really dumbing it down here, but between our eye and our brain, huh? Well, I mean, um, it's, it, it's a matter of demand and supply, obviously, like everything is. And so there have been some, um, the neuro-ophthalmologists that have been serving um, Arizonians have retired recently. 
and there have been some changes and in with inflation and things like that and yeah. changes in the healthcare system that were pretty sudden. Uh, you, there, there has been a sudden drop so that practically I'm the only one. Yeah, yeah. Carly, I'm dying to hear how you two got connected. And, and if you're willing to tell your story, we'd love to hear that. Oh boy, where do I begin? Yeah, wherever um, you want to. <laughs> it's, it's an interesting story. I was diagnosed with um, CVST, cerebral venous sinus thrombosis, in January of last year. My first symptoms were very severe headache. After experiencing that for about 24 hours or so, I went to an urgent care clinic and they treated me for pain management and said, if this continues, um, you need to go to the ER tomorrow. So I did that. It continued. The um, symptoms didn't subside. I was effectively turned away at the ER. They said I had a migraine, pretty routine. I uh, was taken behind a curtain, given some pain management, and um, sent on my way. The following night, I returned to the ER. Um, I hadn't slept since the onset of my symptoms. I couldn't hold down food. I couldn't hold down fluids. And once again, I was turned away. Um, there was really no testing done on me. Um, it was, you know, dismissed as a migraine. The day after that, I had an episode where I was relatively unresponsive. I couldn't speak, really couldn't um, acknowledge uh, my family members. And so they called 911 and the paramedics came and said it was because I had taken melatonin. And so they said, really nothing we can do for you. There's, this is pretty routine stuff. And I, for me, it wasn't routine. routine. <laughs> no, it, it really wasn't. And so my dad said, um, you need to get into your primary care because she knows you. So I went in to see her the following morning and she said, there's something very seriously wrong with you. I had to like sign a waiver that, you know, this was potentially life-threatening. And she said, you need to go to the ER right now. And I'm going to call them and tell them that you're on your way. Um, she thought I had bacterial meningitis at that point. En route to the ER, I had stroke-like symptoms. So I lost feeling um, in half my body. I couldn't speak. My dad was racing me to the ER um, because we were really scared. And I was 19 at this point. So these were not normal 19-year-old symptoms. Stroke is not something that a 19-year-old generally experiences. And so at that point, they finally admitted me into the hospital. And I was there for two weeks being treated. But ultimately, after my discharge, my, my um, symptoms did not subside at all. Um, they were pretty extreme. Um, I was continuously vomiting. I had extreme pain in my head, couldn't function, couldn't do anything. I was a law student. At this point, I had just completed my first semester and I had to drop out of law school. I called my primary care and she said, go to a different hospital and see what they say. And um, there in the ER was the first time that my vision was examined. And I had been experiencing double vision in the first hospital. I had been telling that as part of oh, yeah. my symptoms. Oh, yeah. I had been telling that, and my vision was never examined. It was finally examined at the second ER. That's where they kind of briefly mentioned a neuro-ophthalmologist. And an ER nurse said, I actually know of one that's taking patients. Mm -hmm. And she referred me, or my mom. I was not functional at this right. point. Uh, I couldn't do anything for myself. And so my mom was really in charge of my care. She called Dr. Subay's office, and he was pretty much the first person to take me seriously. 
by that point, I was rapidly losing my vision. So ever since I've been in his care, he helped me get an emergency shunt placement because by the time I was in his care, my vision had deteriorated significantly. I needed the shunt placement to save the remainder of my vision. But he's really um, advocated for me like nobody else has. He saved my vision, truly. Um, I credit him immensely. Yeah, even with all my other symptoms, he's been helpful. So that's how we got acquainted. And that's kind of the relationship we have. I still see him. I was seeing him for a while, twice weekly. So we got uh, relatively close. But yeah, that's that's really the story. I'm so appreciative and I'm sure our listeners are too to you being so vulnerable vulnerable and sharing your story. It, it isn't easy to hear that that you've been through such a, a traumatic experience. And yeah. and my daughter has a, a chronic illness that started, mm-hmm. I think, probably six years ago. And all those no's or, or we don't know, my goodness, it gets to be really hard, especially, I, don't, I didn't hear that from you, but with my, in my daughter's case, it was almost sometimes people are saying to her, it's just all in your head, <laughs> which literally in this case, it, it is in your head. It, it was. But it wasn't meant that way, right? It was meant like you're making this up and, and, and whatever that is. So right. thank you for sharing. I want to pipe in and, and jump in anytime as you have other thoughts to share. Okay. I noticed you were taking notes. <laughs> what, what of what Carly have share, has shared would you like to add on to that? Because I'm very curious as you hear it from your patient's perspective, what shows up for you when she shares that story? And is that normally how people end up with you? It has to be something tragic before they land in your office. Yes, unfortunately. And that's really? that's the main issue is the medical community's understanding of what neuro-ophthalmology is, its needs, and really lack of understanding of vision in general and Mm -hmm. visual needs. So first thing is Carly should have been sent to a vision specialist right away. If if her vision is not going to, if anybody's uh, vision is not going to be evaluated while they have visual symptoms, that's a red flag. And you would say the same thing. Absolutely. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. I mean, absolutely. So Kind of a no-brainer, at least it seems. Yes, unfortunately, no-brainer is very important. (laughs) I'm listening to myself say a few of these. Wow, these are lots of little uh, silly, silly things that I'm saying, but they're very perspective. But but the fact of the matter is, medicine currently is being practiced in a no-brainer fashion. Right. It's automated. This is, I think, the core of the issue of medical practice today in general, is it's not taken seriously the way that it should be. Medicine is trying is being automated in a mindless, automated, conveyor belt-like fashion where you, I can't really call it healthcare. I would call it a corporate enterprise that has something to do with your health mm-hmm. one way or another. Mm-hmm. Usually not too good of an outcome, uh, at least from my experience. Uh, so, you know, a case like this, or Carly's, should never have ended up the way it has. I mean, it's like you said, it's a no-brainer. Somebody comes in, I've got vision symptoms. Somebody examine my vision. Would somebody please? After one, two, three, four, five, six encounters. Encounters. And we're not talking about, you know, some middle of nowhere. We're talking about the fastest growing city in the country. And we're talking about the biggest medical systems. The issue is the way corporations run the medical system ends up in this automated fashion where reimbursement 
from Medicare set by the government is designed in such a way to reward quantity and disincentivize quality. So, for example, um, if I, anybody, any specialist sees any particular patient and they spend 30 minutes or 30 seconds, hey, he's not... Get him in, get him in, push him through. Exactly. So, it's it's really sad, but you end up with tragic situations. Yeah. And it really... Carly's case, and I, I see similar cases, not necessarily exactly the same, but I see it on a regular basis. And it's really, uh, I have this, when I when I see situations like this, it makes me really want to change things. And it's really my drive to be practicing neuro-ophthalmology against all the odds. Because, you know, there's a half a dozen, at least the ones I know, other neuro-ophthalmologists, and they were not able to. It's not because I'm brilliant and they're not or something of that nature. It's because of the, the uh, basically, corporate greed. The constraints. Driving, driving uh, the medical system into this situation. And so um, somebody should have examined her vision and not just considered it as a automated this plus this, A plus B must equal C or D. Mm-hmm. The extent of my vision care during my first hospitalization was, you know, basic, you know, can you see my fingers? And then when I was complaining over and over of double vision, they um, said, we don't have any eye patches for you here in the hospital. And so ask your parents to go to a local drugstore, purchase one and bring it back for you. And so I wore an eye patch uh, to resolve my double vision for weeks. That was it. I mean, I wasn't even provided an eye patch, which I mean, isn't even... It's not fixing anyway, but at least there was something. It, it was the placebo. It was, yeah. <laughs> wow. Danielle, tell us about your practice. And again, where does it intersect? And then really anything that Carly mentioned, I'd, I'd be curious as to what you're sensing as well. Well, this is the first time I've heard Carly's oh, story. Okay. So it's, it's, I just applaud you for, you know, advocating for yourself and reaching out to Dr. Sube and, thank you, you know getting your care taken care of. I work at Ophthalmic Surgeons and Physicians. So we are in the East Valley, the three locations I mentioned earlier. We have four ophthalmologists and two optometrists. And we treat mainly anterior segment disease, which is what I mean by that as a front half of the eye disease. So all disease management, cataract surgeries, um, glaucoma, corneal specialties. Dr. Sube and I share patients. Think of us as equivalent to primary care physician. People come in with complaints. We have to navigate from there. What is the issue at hand? A lot of people, and I don't know, I don't want to speak for you, but maybe had some early symptoms of things going on that they couldn't necessarily describe or understand what was happening, and they'll come in with us. I will do an ocular examination and see if the eye is the issue, right? But we're talking about two of the most complex systems in the body. We're, we're dealing with the eye connecting back to the brain. We'll treat, manage eye conditions. And if nothing is really making sense to us and we can see that there is a brain connection or something kind of unusual, bring in Dr. Sube for right. evaluation. How often does that happen? Just, I mean, is it is it common? Is it is it typically something? I, I just don't know anything about eye care at all other than when I wear glasses and contacts. But do you find that there's frequent opportunity to bring him in? Absolutely. Really? And Absolutely. I would, I would All imagine, the time. right. 
if you don't mind, I'll chime in here a little bit. So to kind of give you perspective. So the brain is the, the human brain is the most complex entity that we're aware of in the universe. About half of the cranial nerves, so the brain has nerves that shoot straight out from it. There's 12 of them. About half of them are dedicated to vision. Wow. Either vision <laughs> and balance, which are kind of interconnected. Sure. So eye movements, uh, balance, keeping eyes coordinated, working together, receiving the, uh, the signal through the optic nerve which really is a misnomer. It's not a nerve. It's actually cylinders shooting from the brain into the back of the eye. So when we examine the eye, we are literally looking at your brain. And so and about 50% plus of the brain is integrated in processing vision. So you, know, you see something it, and then um, it goes through the eye, like I said, through the optic nerve to the back of the brain where it's recreated. And then it makes sense out of it. That Those three words are so complex. So, for example, you're looking at in the studio here. You're looking at, you can see a camera, you can see a table, you can see the on-air uh, light, and therefore, you have to, these visual inputs collectively come together. They're connected to memory. They're connected to understanding your um, 3D dimensional, uh, 3D uh, spatial recognition of where things are situated. They're not on top of each other. Not They're not behind each other. They're situated in such a way that makes you understand that, okay, we're in a studio here. That visual input, it's not just lights, colors. It's so much more complex than that. There's this three-dimensional rendering of it. There's making sense of what uh, these things mean. There's facial recognition, for example. Uh, there's people who have uh, a disease in a certain part of the brain where they can see and even describe and some even can draw the faces of their family members and, and loved ones. But yet when they look at them, they can't recognize them. So they can see it perfectly fine. There's no problem with the receiving the detailed vision. It's making sense out of it. That's problematic. Some people have problems where they see everything as if it's a two-dimensional cartoon. Imagine living your life like you're in the cartoons in the 80s or something. Mm -hmm. you know? No, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> so these kind of things, um, the brain processes and, and is a lot more complex. And then that's the sensory part. The motor part is moving the eyes, moving, uh, keeping them in position when your head is moving in three-dimensional space, giving you understanding that your your head is moving in this direction and therefore your eyes are also moving and when you want your eyes to move in the opposite direction for example up down all that there's a lot of input coming back and forth explaining to you for example if you're slipping how do you prevent yourself from falling that is enormous amount of information your eyes are looking at the rail next to you and your brain is getting a signal about your feet no longer touching the ground, and you're looking, you're seeing your, your feet in the air, and within a split second, you make the determination of understanding what's going on and the determination of what the best solution is, and then you send the signal to your arm to grab onto the rail. So all that is happening in real time, split sec splits of seconds. And so um, we get a lot of patients with things like double vision where there's some misalignment in their eyes. And so one eye is pointing in a direction that's higher than the other, for example, for some reason. And there's 
so many reasons that that could happen. The beauty about, and what I like the most about neuro-ophthalmology is it's really, um, you deal with systemic neurologic disease that affects vision one way or another. And because, like I said, about half of your brain is integrated into vision, so many things. There isn't a neurologic problem that can't affect your vision. We're talking about stroke, migraines, seizures, uh, autoimmune disease, like um, your, your, uh, your infection-fighting <clears throat> cells attack your brain or nerves or the junction between where the nerves and the muscles meet. For example, multiple sclerosis, neuromyelitis optica, myasthenia gravis. Uh, these are all systemic diseases that can affect vision and do affect vision very commonly. And so somebody whose training is in the eye can recognize that, okay, you might have something like this, but it's absolutely not equipped or trained to take care of the systemic neurologic problem. And that's, that's where I come in to, to help them out. Mm -hmm. And so there's so much, so much of these issues that vision specialists have a really hard time figuring out how to help these people. Because if they send them to a general neurologist, they're not trained in understanding vision. They're not trained in examining the eyes the way neuro-ophthalmologist is. And so there's this huge disconnect where, okay, if they're already diagnosed with something or they have a very obvious case of a neurologic disease, then, okay, yeah, they could definitely help. But more often than not, it's not clear. And medicine, and this is this goes kind of into what I was saying earlier on, you can't automate medicine. And the reason being is it's not just the science. It's an art of understanding and healing the human body. And the brain being so complex, there's no such thing as inside the box. So in order to practice medicine properly, and especially in neurology, neuro-ophthalmology, you have to have creativity. You have to have understanding of awareness of your patient's psychology, their mindset. As neurologists, we know and we're trained to, to understand that every patient, which could be anybody and, and will be everybody as we've, we've seen anybody, you know, nobody's immune to being sick. Every patient has some amount of psychological component to their disease. Absolutely. So, you know, it's usually not zero or 100. It's usually somewhere in between, and it's variable. And being able to see somebody for the first time in your life and figure that out in a few minutes is an art. Being scanned by a scanner or triaged by some artificial intelligence is not going to tell it you It only that. tells one tiny part of the story, mm -hmm. doesn't it? What? A scan would only say oh, yeah. this much about somebody's... Actually, oftentimes it's very misleading. So, you know, a scan might show something that's just random. Human beings are not machines. They're, they're not, there's no such thing as one size fits all. There's, it's a million shades of gray. Even for common diseases, let's just take diabetes, for example. Some people get retinal, uh, diabetic retinopathy. They have a problem with the retina, part of the eye. Some people get optic neuropathies, you know, like a stroke to their optic nerve. Some people get a peripheral nerve neuropathy where they get tingling and prickling sensations. Some people get a peripheral motor neuropathy where they can't move their hand or their foot properly. Some people get ulcers. Some people get gangrene. Some people get infection to the bone and they need an amputation. What All these people have the same disease. Mm 
And there is no number or predictor or any test that will tell you that, okay, because you got this test positive, you're going to have gangrene. Because you have this test positive, you're going to have a retinal problem. No, yeah, you can't. That, that doesn't exist. And so why do we try to tackle medicine as if it is a one-size-fits-all automated mindless conveyor belt? Yeah. I don't know the answer to that question. Well, I do. That, <laughs> I, I know you do. <laughs> yeah. Dr. Remington, I'm curious as an optometrist, when folks come and see you guys in your practice at these three locations, I'm, I'm assuming then you look, you're looking at the individual holistically as well too, and I'm, I'm probably overusing that term, but based on what he's sharing, there's so many different factors. Absolutely. And when should somebody come and see you guys? Every year. It, it, Every single year. Yeah. Often, I mean, systemic conditions affect the eye more commonly than not. So and, I mean, and we're not clearly paying attention to that, are we? A lot of people kind of disregard it. Um, they think diabetes, I have diabetes. That's my blood sugar. Nothing else is going to happen to me. Like, like Dr. Sube was saying, you know, diabetic retinopathy is common. You can lose vision from it. So, and that's just one of the many conditions that can affect the eye. So, I can't count on one hand the number of times, you know, just in this year, 2023, that people have come in for just, you know, check their eyes for the first time in 10 years and something more serious is happening already um, because they haven't had an eye exam in 10, 15 years. Why are we putting it off? Do you know? That's a good question. Yeah, I, Everyone's answer is different. Yeah, I, you know? I would have bet. And, and for me, although I don't think I've ever put off eye care necessarily, but I have put off my mammogram and my colonoscopy and some of the other things for me, it was as a mom taking care of my kids and their needs when my daughter was ill. My husband at the time was very sick. So it was like, well, I'm feeling pretty good. Right. I'll just put all my emphasis and time and finances to helping support them because they're worse off than me, which yeah. really doesn't help us. And a lot right? of people simplify it. They say, I have 20-20 vision. My eyes are perfect. Yeah. Not everything affects your eyes right away. And, and, and by the time it does, it may be too late. Yes, to and, which is why it's important to come see you right. every year because you're able to tell us a little bit about what it's like to come for, for an annual. Uh, just the process the patients will go through? Yeah. So uh, we'll, we'll check your vision, you know, make sure, first off, where are you? Are you okay to be driving? Are you legal to be driving? Um, do you have 20-20 vision without glasses, with glasses? We do do the standard contact lens glasses, but then more importantly, we'll dilate your eyes and see what is happening in the retina. Is the optic nerve healthy? Um, Do you have cataracts? Is there bleeding in the back of your eye? Why is there bleeding in the back of your eye? You know, is it something that maybe you do have undiagnosed diabetes or hypertensive issues, um, bleeding disorders? So full eye exam, it's going to cost you about an hour of your day once a year, you know, just to make sure you're staying on top of your health. And it can tell a story about so much more. Absolutely. <laughs> if you are seeing something. Absolutely. And and I'm curious, when you're speaking about these topics, uh, who are you speaking to? General public, other other doctors? Who needs to hear this? I mean, clearly we all need to hear it, but since we're on Business Radio X, who else do we need to get you in front of? <laughs> so that <laughs> So that I'm thinking, so that more people know how important this is and don't have to experience what Carly experienced or they know who to get to. But I'm also thinking from the lens, there's another reference, not on purpose, but there you go, um, of future doctors coming through and interest in this area. It seems like certainly we need more than just one of you. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, my goal is, and I started the, the Brain and Eye Institute, the goal I have set for this is to be able to take care of the entire state of Arizona's needs for neuro and 
everything that comes with that. So like I said, these patients are very complex. It's not like um, here you take this one treatment and you're fine. Oftentimes they need rehab. They need um, spectacles of different sorts, maybe prisms. Maybe they need um, infusions yeah, because shunt. of a shunt, <laughs> surgical procedures. There's so much that they need. Electrolyte changes, weight loss programs. A lot of times more commonly we see patients with obesity come with increased pressure in the brain, similar to what happened uh, with Carly, but not because of a blood clot, because of um, obesity. That's actually a very common thing that I see. It's one of the most common issues that I do see. And the pressure goes so high in the brain, it pressurizes the optic nerves and it literally kills those nerve cells and people lose vision permanently. So there's a, a whole different panel of things that need to be done. And of course, they're highly um, customizable depending on the patient's situation. And so my plan is to provide all these different services from all these different specialists and all these different services for the entire state of Arizona. However, the there are a lot of challenges. <laughs> <laughs> it's very important for um, everybody, every um, medical institution, every practice to know, first off, what neuro-ophthalmology is and to be able to, um, like what happened in Carly's case. I mean, that nurse who was at that emergency room was the one that sent her to us. And had that not been the case, I am confident Carly would have lost more vision permanently yeah. until she got to see somebody who was able to help her. So yeah, it's very important for people in the emergency room most commonly because it's because the emergency rooms are not utilize the way they should be. Mm. It's it, They have this triage system and because of the, the corporate way of practicing or forcing physicians to practice medicine is this automated way. So maybe a hundred, let's not even a hundred, thousands of patients will come in with a headache, but not all headache is the same. You know, Carly's headache was clearly not just a teenager's migraine. It, and and it requires a physician who sits down, talks to the patient, examines them to know that. It can't just be click on the screen, click your symptoms, and therefore we will come up. This is what happens in the, well, in the emergency room, by the way. So, <laughs> yeah. you know, you, you, you click on the symptoms you have. Okay, headache, abdominal pain, you know, numbness. Okay, so therefore we'll do a CT scan of the abdomen. We'll do some blood work. And if they're young and healthy, we won't have to do a CT scan of the head. Mm. That's fine. Unless they meet these particular criteria. So it's like human beings are not this, you know, they're not machines. You can't expect that. Maybe it'll work for the majority of cases, but a lot of times you're missing it. And I think that goes back to Carly's point, And I would love for both of you, all three of you to chime in. How can we advocate? Why is it important? And how can we advocate for ourselves? It's something that as I have 28 and 26 year old, even my 15 year old, I've been teaching them, you've got to be the one in charge of, of whether it's your education or your relationships or your job and certainly your health. You've got to go in and you've got to give them as much information as you have, even if you feel like you're talking too much and ask a set of questions because they might not be providing the answers that you're looking for. What, what would you say that as you, as you become an advocate, and of course you had your parents, thankfully, 
advocating with you. What's the biggest takeaway that you would share with listeners around their health? And like I said, I was pretty out of it during a lot of my treatment, but I I was able to see my mom and Dr. Sube also advocated on my behalf. And then as I've been able to regain consciousness almost, I've kind of developed a sense of, you need to take me seriously. This is not something... I'm a woman. I'm a young woman. And I think in the medical field, young women are dismissed all the time. And I think it's just really being assertive. And I, I think that that is a problem among young women is we we have trouble being assertive. We're not taught to be assertive. And so really learning to do that and advocating. I was just talking to um, two other survivors of the same CVST this morning who had the exact same, almost the exact same experience in the ER being dismissed. And one was not able to get help like the Dr. Subay provided. One was, but you know, this is something that I've seen over and over again in support groups that people are not, they're intimidated. And so I think overcoming that intimidation uh, is really important for people like me and people with medical issues, with chronic illness. It's something that's learned, but it there's a barrier there that really shouldn't be there. It, it's just really putting yourself out there more uh, than you might have otherwise been taught. And I have, I'm begging to ask the question, are you back in law school? I am. I'm so glad because clearly as you articulate, right, I can see this passion, like (laughs) you need to have a platform and a voice. Right. Uh, What area of law are you studying? So criminal law is my undergrad. um, And that's really why I came to law school. This summer, I'll be at the Arizona Supreme Court with Justice Timmer in her office. And We'll just go from there. I'm in my first year still, and we'll see how it goes. But uh, this fall, I'll be working on um, prisoners' appeals, wrongfully convicted appeals. So it should be interesting to see where that takes me and how that experience kind of shapes what I'm going to do. No doubt. Are your parents super proud of you? (laughs) Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Incredible. What else do we need to encourage our listeners to, to do in order to advocate for themselves? Just to go off what Carly said, clear communication. And that's on the providers too, uh, asking the right questions, make sure you're listening. Um, but one of the things I always ask my patients, um, is this normal for you? Are these symptoms new? What's going on that's different and got you worried? Just trying to figure out, you know, why Why did they come in? Listening to your patient is huge. A lot of people, because we're so rushed with time and, you know, we got to move on to the next person. They don't have time to sit down and listen to the patient in front of them. So just making sure you're communicating. And again, that's on the providers too. Make sure you're listening to your patients. Mm -hmm. Tell me your greatest joy in in being in the practice that you're in and and the work that you do. Oh gosh, my greatest joy. I don't know. I mean, it's like Dr. Subay said earlier, everyone comes in saying, you know, I need to make sure my eyes are healthy. You know, I can't work without my eyes or you know, my eyes are critical to my job. Well, that's everybody. The eyes, everyone needs their eyes. So just to make sure that I'm there to protect people's health and their eyes and they'll stay seeing for the rest of their life. And if not, figure out what we can do to kind of halt the progression of any disease going on. Mm-hmm. Thank you. How about you? You know, um, every time I, I hear Carly's story and I think of um, the many, many patients that I've helped um, with similar stories, uh, 
it, it's very invigorating and it it gives me the energy to wake up every day and fight the corporation because like she said it's intimidating and it's not just intimidating to young females it's intimidating to physicians it's very intimidating absolutely i don't think i've ever heard anybody say that before well it's very honest and candid it's it's the reality i mean if you look at the uh u.s health industry overall just just big picture kind of roughly about 30 percent is owned by a few insurance companies Mm -hmm. you know united cigna blue cross blue shield and um those are the big ones and they dictate how medicine is practiced and so think and they have these very strange um regulations that you would not think would exist in the free market of the united states of america you know we're talking about you can only enroll one month out of the year for example (laughs) imagine that imagine if you wanted to buy a car you can only buy it in november if it's december 1st sorry too late. Can't buy a car. Cars oh, my car broke down. What's that? Cars are off a lot. Right. <laughs> That's it. Yeah, I mean, imagine what that does with, in terms of the business perspective and competition. That eliminates competition. How is that different than price fixing? It's not very. So, okay, you're, you're stuck only once a year and you ha- you're stuck with very high premiums. And this is what frustrates and makes it very difficult for everybody involved. As physicians, we have dedicated decades of our life not to make money. And this is a big, big misconception. Mm-hmm. You know, they did this study about the average physician that spent the average amount of time in training, and the average specialty, and the average income, and the average hours they do. And it turns out, per hour spent over their entire career, they make the same as a teacher. Yes, I believe that. We just work hell of a lot more than the average person does. It's not about, and with, of course, with the debt, I forgot to mention that, the debt for yes. medical school is insane. So, um, and the, the interest that compounds with all that. So, um, if you put that all together, we're just like anybody else. We're just working a lot harder than most people. But people think of, oh, these are these physicians, they're just in it for the money and they don't care. Well, it's actually not the physicians. Physicians from this whole all the physicians and all the medical providers from the entire medical industry, they make 9 to 10%. 30% insurance companies, 30% hospitals, 30% pharmaceuticals, medical devices, medical supplies, all that. And so if you look at all these industries, the one that has the fewest actual companies is insurance companies, then hospitals, then pharma and uh, medical devices. And so they control everything. And with inflation that just um, took place in the past couple of years, all of those industries have increased their pricing and increased how much revenue, except for physician. You know what happened? Medicare cut it down by 2%. Wow. And since 2002, Medicare has cut down physician reimbursement by about 25%. So imagine an industry where you lose 25% and then you add about a 20, 30% inflation we're talking about a 55% reduction in profit. Yet somehow people expect the quality to be the same. It makes no sense. Mm-hmm. And so I'm saying this so that people understand what's going on. 
I people don't, you know, there's not enough time to sit there and talk to explain this to every single patient. Right. I mean, it's just the system makes sure that you don't have enough time. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's about quantity, turn and burn, like you said. So, And the parallel to at least the public school system I find fascinating. I'm a former educator, third grade teacher, and assistant principal. And it's butts and seats, <laughs> just like quantity over quality. Mm-hmm. And the teacher, mm-hmm. much like the physicians, like you guys, we're the ones on the front end. Exactly. You know, and, and have been... Most of us have gone into those professions because we care and we want to make a difference. And yet our hands are tied and our backs are up against the wall because of all these other, you know, enterprise players. Exactly. Yeah. This, I think that the teacher, uh, teachers and doctors have very similar roles. You know, it's a different industry, but it's pretty much, you know, the same role. You're sacrificing yourself for others. Very selfless. It's very disheartening when people speak ill of teachers or physicians. I mean, you know, I'm sure not 100% of teachers or physicians are um, great, but the majority of them are. I don't know one physician that went into medicine because of money. Mm-hmm. And and the, the situation is because of how difficult it's becoming financially to practice medicine independently or in a small practice, small practice almost doesn't exist anymore. They're going away. Yeah. yeah, especially in ophthalmology and neurology because they require so much um, expensive equipment. You know, the overhead for starting um, a clinic is hundreds of thousands of dollars. That's why, for example, the people I bought my furniture for my clinic um, from are ophthalmologists who have been practicing successfully for decades and they're doing great and they have great reviews and you know their patients love them. But they're like, you know what? It's not, I can't do it anymore. I'd love to, but it's it's too difficult. It's hearing the same thing from my teacher friends who are retiring. <laughs> I'm I'm done. I'm tapping out. It's too difficult. Exactly. So these corporations they come and gobble them up. And then you have the same kind of automated mm-hmm. medicine that end up in Carly's situation. Yeah. As we kind of round out our conversation. I would love to have a longer conversation now. However, you all have lives. <laughs> and I've got a baseball game to get to. I asked Carly and Dr. Remington this question. I want to ask you as well. What can patients do to advocate? Let's take you, let's take your question a little bit broader than that to advocate for a stronger and better healthcare system. And then I'd like to have you answer that from the perspective of physicians and providers as well. The way I practice is I do get my patients involved, um, even though they may not always necessarily like it, but they have to be involved. You, your insurance company is giving you a hard time. They're preventing your ability to get the care that you need, for whatever, whether it's medication, treatment, diagnostics, et cetera. You need to be on the phone with them. Oh, it's, I get it. It's so hard. And it yet is. we have to. It is. It's, it's challenging. But if you're not going to do it, you're going to rely on your physician staff to do it. And there's only so much they can do, especially that you're the customer. So from a business perspective, insurance companies actually, and practically speaking, they were, you know, they were more responsive to your direct needs because you're paying them the premium. Mm-hmm. And therefore, you can, in November, switch to another company. <laughs> and so, and that's how they regulate that. And so mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. you can switch to another company. Therefore, they need to listen to you and they're more likely to, practically speaking. And so I always encourage my patients, I'm like, okay. You need a prior authorization. We'll help you. You know, we're not going to just let you hang dry, but 
You need to advocate for it. You need to be on the phone. You need to call them. And 90% of the time, it works so much better. It works so much better. And when you get a no, you have to call again, right? Uh, yeah. And continue to, I mean, I've been through several appeal processes mm-hmm. within my insurance companies on behalf of myself and my kids for different things. Exactly. I mean, just just like what Carly did, you know, and her, and her family did. You know, they advocated for her. They didn't just take it a no for an answer because that's what corporations do. They stiff arm you until you give up. Mm-hmm. And so you got to keep fighting until you get what you need. Mm-hmm. And it's always a fight. Average physician will see like 25, 30 patients a day, five days a week. Let's just say they don't take, they don't do weekends. That's about 150 a week. That's 600 a month. And that, you know, let's say they do 10 months, 12 months. That's about 7,000 fights a year. Mm -hmm. So you got to help them if you want to help yourself. So that's what I would say. The first thing is get involved with the, with your payers' um, issues to help resolve them. And then what I would also say is, as a broader issue, I think, um, <clears throat> especially in terms of um, small medical practices and, and the specialty of vision and neuro, uh, neurology, neuro-ophthalmology, ophthalmology, optometry, uh, I have been in, uh, trying to get a hold of the governor, Katie Hobbs, both our senators to fix this problem and provide adequate compensation for small medical practices. Because like, like we talked about at length is it's the small medical practices that give you the time that patients need so that they don't end up in a situation like Carly's. And so they need funding. It's not going to happen with all the cuts that keep happening, at least compensate for the inflation, which the, the rest of the industry has. So it's got to be fair. If you want a good service, you have to allow the good service to, to be viable. And that's what where I think contacting the governor and the senators um, will be helpful. And so um, these are some of the things that patients uh, can do. For physicians, I think physicians need to unionize. You know, if you don't like that word or that particular setting, some um, arrangement for collaborative negotiation. We need to be able to provide our care for patients the way that they need it, not the way that makes more money and at the expense of people's health. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, uh, physicians tend to have this um, nature of being separated. And I think it has to do with the way they train us. It's like, oh, that's Mm -hmm. cardiology, you know. (laughs) They're, they have their own thing. They're weird, you know, or whatever. I'm not picking on, on them, but... As an example. It's just as an example. <laughs> yeah. And so, you know, this is, neurologists, though, they're definitely different, which they are. <laughs> but, uh, you know, th- there's this kind of division. You're saying there, it would be beneficial to have a collective voice. Absolutely. <laughs> yes. Hmm. Yeah. Um, I think those are the... That's a good place to start. Mm-hmm. And there are... I am seeing that there are some organizations out there that are trying um, to do that. And um, there there has been, um, I think, what Proposition 209, for example, came up against predatory actions of mm-hmm. um, hospital uh, hospitals and medical corporations to stop predatory financial abuse of patients with interest rates of above 10% mm-hmm. that are compounded, which basically... Um, scares the hell out of everybody and that's why they go run running to buy expensive premium health insurance and then the health insurance companies tell them we're not going to do this we're not going to do that we're not going to oh, pay yes. for you 
So going to the physician's staff and yelling at them is not going to fix the problem. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> that only makes it worse because then the staff will leave and then... <laughs> All right, now we're really in trouble. <laughs> yes. Wow. So many great uh, stories that you've all shared. In addition to kind of directives, it's definitely something that, um, that needs to change. Absolutely. I'm appreciative that you're willing to say, here's how I'm showing up in this space, and, and this is how I w- would like to see all of us kind of collectively come together. Uh, how can people uh, get in touch with you, not only uh, as patients, of course, but maybe physicians or a practice that's listening or somebody who's going through school? You're on LinkedIn. We know that because that's where we found you. Yes. <laughs> uh, but what is the best way to get in touch if, if there is a professional and a, and a uh, provider, a physician out there that says, gosh, I want to run on, run alongside you with this. I would say the best way to contact us will be by email, uh, Dr. Dr. Period, Sube at brainandeye.org. Okay. And Sube is S-U-B as in boy, E-I. Correct. Okay. Very yes. good. Thank you so much for accepting our invitation to come and, and share your story. And I'm greatly appreciative that you brought these two incredible human beings here with you as well. Carly, good luck to you in law school. Thank you. So this, uh, this is year two for you then? This is... So this is my first year still. I'll um, be done take my, a break. <laughs> yep. I had to take a break, but I'll be finished with my first year in May. So... Fantastic. And four years at ASU undergrad. So I went to the University of Washington for undergrad. Yeah. Yeah. And Um, so this is how many years at ASU then until you have your law degree? Three total. Okay. So about two more years to go. Thanks. Super, super impressed with uh, the way you've shared your story today. And again, being vulnerable and and kind enough to do that to help uh, accentuate the points that both these doctors have had for us today. So thank you for spending time with us. Absolutely. Dr. Remington, how can people get in touch with you and and uh, what is the best place for people to start and, and join your practice? I am on LinkedIn, um, Danielle Remington. But other than that, calling the office, Ophthalmic Surgeons and Physicians, um, 480-839-0206. Awatuki Tempe and Sun Lakes, Sun Lakes yes. as well. Yeah. Is it open to patients of all ages? When it, when's the, what's, what's the youngest patient that you would see? So late teenage years mm-hmm. and up, typically. Mm-hmm. So good. Thank yes, you all for thank being you. here. Really thank deeply appreciative of the conversation. And I'm hoping we can have an off-air conversation about how we might be able to help you uh, make some of these differences on behalf of legislature and making sure that Arizona is you know, a force to be reckoned with and making some really solid decisions around how to protect our patients and be advocates for our providers. So Absolutely. Looking forward, forward to, to it. it. You've been listening to Phoenix Business Radio, broadcasting live from Max 6 Entrepreneur Center right here in Tampa, Arizona. Some media leans left, some lean right, and we lean eye care. How about that? No, we lean business. Thanks for listening. Karen and Wiki, we'll see you next time. Mm-hmm.